is Kyla. Welcome to my channel where we talk about the stock market and the economy, amongst other things. My mind is a barrel. So today I'm going to be talking a little bit about some theories. So if this is your first video with me, I normally stay a little bit closer to fundamental analysis, but I have been doing a lot of thinking lately mostly about the markets and the economy and have just been really reflecting on what's going on. So this piece is really about some theories, just diving really deep into like what is going on because it's really easy to be like, oh, I think this stock is going to go up. But if you don't zoom out and see the whole macro picture, that's going to disrupt how you process stock go up or crypto go up or whatever. So this piece is going to be primarily about all of that. The theories of interconnectivity is, is the title of the piece. And I have been traveling for the past few weeks. I will be back here for about a week or so, and then I'll be on the go again. I'm going to really work on getting a camera and some audio quality that's a little bit better. So that's the goal. And thanks so much for hanging out and for being with me on the journey. The theories of interconnectivity or why a trillion dollar coin and George Soros actually makes sense. So a few days ago, I tweeted this out, a summary of the economy and the markets. It was this big thing that was talking about all the interconnectivity. So pandemic versus China betting crypto versus electricity, natural gas prices, US Bank launching crypto custody service, the TikTok NFT stuff all of that stuff and how it was sort of interconnected. The thing is that there's so much happening and everything feels really interrelated. It's like really hard to put your finger on what it all means. I think it's interrelated, but I'm not really sure. So how does natural gas tie into a crypto custody service? How do mainstream NFTs impact Evergrande over in China? Because it's like when all this stuff is going on, you're like, oh my gosh, like what? And a lot of my stuff tends to drift into the metaphysical. I think it's so important to be able to really zoom out on this stuff and be like, okay, I know why this is happening. I know how this will tie into this. So I think it's really important to understand all the stuff that's going on, not even from a financial education perspective. So if you've been following me for a while, financial education is literally uh, my passion. It's how do we get more people talking about the markets? Now, even beyond that, how do we get more people to understand how macroeconomic policy is impacting their day-to-day -day life? Like, I think it's so bizarre that we have the Fed and politicians making for the debt ceiling, right? Making these like really high level decisions and you have the, the everyday person being like, oh, okay, like you're making a decision about my future, but I really don't know what that means. Like that is my goal is to be like, okay, so we're talking about the debt ceiling right here and that's how it's going to impact you. And this is what you need to know in order to be a human in a society <laughs> because it's just the craziest thing in the world to me. Even not like, okay, what's a stock? Even beyond that, what's the Federal Reserve? <laughs> and how does that impact you? Because it does. And I think, so that's my goal in the content that I make. I hope it's helpful. And I'm sure there's ways that I can be more helpful. And trust me, I'm thinking actively about that. But that's my goal. So small tangent and hello again. Let's get back to the theories. The more disparate everything feels, the harder it can be to process. And that can distract from the ability to make clear headed decisions. Cause you're like, okay, I see food prices going up, but why, like what's going on? My goal with this piece that I wrote was to kind of explain some theories behind what's going on. They're a little bit more abstract, but I think I can distill them down pretty well in, in the audio form. Let's get right into it then, some theories. 
The not enoughness theory. Consumerism is a leading way of economic growth. So the way that we grow an economy is by like, okay, you're gonna buy X, Y, and Z from me. That money is gonna go back into the economy. You're gonna take your clothes and you're gonna put them in your closet. You're gonna wear your clothes and it's gonna get holes one day. And you're gonna be like, I gotta buy more clothes. And you putting that money into the economy is gonna get that economy spinning. But also when you go and buy clothes, that that store owner is going to be like, okay, they just gave me money for the clothes that they bought from me. I'm going to go buy more clothes, but I'm also going to buy food for dinner. And I'm also going to spend that on a car payment. And so money flows throughout society in that fashion. And that's why consumer spending is one of the main ways to grow an economy is because money flows through society in that like almost stepwise function. Governments really rely on that to push the needle forward. Essentially the whole idea is consumer spending is really important and I think one thing that happens when consumer spending is the most important thing about a society is that that can leave infrastructure underinvested in and that can cause supply to not match the level of demand needed by consumers which leads to shortages like we're experiencing right now. So consumer spending drives the economy, government incentivizes consumer spending, there's maybe a lack of infrastructure investment so the government's like well you know we don't really need to invest in roads because consumer spending is going to drive the economy regardless i don't think it's so much x to y in their heads but i do there is some interrelatedness there with government and, and, and investment in infrastructure and so then things end up falling apart due to this underinvestment and from outsized demand, especially now, because we're sort of on the other side of COVID, people are like, oh my gosh, let me out. And that leads to shortages. And so I think that we, in the United States, genuinely have like a really big consumerism problem. You know, we have fast fashion, we have Amazon Prime, even how we're interacting with NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens. Uh, if you go on crypto Twitter, it's just, people are just consuming. They're just like, I think this will have potentially unlimited upside, so I'm gonna buy it. And I'm gonna talk about the value of a dollar, how that can be broken out, but people are like, no, you know, I'm gonna go and buy this, I'm gonna go and buy this, I'm gonna buy, 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 buy. And we never really stop and we just consume and clutter. The government is like, okay, cool, like that's good with us. You know, that leads to GDP growth. So they say, oh, like you wanna spend that cash? Say less, like we'll get you there, dude. We'll make sure you can spend your money. No worries at all. And that's how we end up with an economy that's arguably over-reliant and pretty dependent on consumer spending. And I think this also leads to the lack of infrastructure investment because consumerism is probably one of the reasons that the government is like, no big deal if we don't have more public parks. And this is very, like, this is a little bit far-fetched, a bit of a stretch, but they're like, Consumers just want to spend money and that's what we need them to do. We're going to build things that are going to incentivize them to spend money like malls or car lots or other things like that. We don't really need to invest in infrastructure so the things supporting the consumer spending process, the supply chain, because we really just want that end goal of people spending money. And if we invest in the bits and pieces along the way that detracts from that final goal of people spending money, because we just don't get there enough. And politicians are only in office for like two to four years usually, unless you're Mitch McConnell. And the government could grow the economy by making things better, but they could also just not spend that money instead and be like, well, consumers will go and spend money. And if you're a politician, you're like, well, I'm going to show the world that I'm not going to spend any money because I have a lot of discipline around money spending. So you should vote for me because I've got that discipline. Mm -hmm. Then we end up in a situation where if you don't invest in infrastructure, 
things end up falling apart. Now you can't produce enough to match that required level of demand, and that is where things end up being bad. So this gets into the idea of shortages. When demand exceeds supply, or when there literally is not enough supply, we get shortages. And this is compounded by the labor shortages that we have, raw materials going wonky in price, and also the boats that are stuck in the ports. And arguably, the key driver here is that lack of investment, that underinvestment in supply chains. And also, there's a really there's a ton of demand right now because everybody's like, yeah, let us out, pandemic. It ends up being this cycle of not enoughness. Arguably, you could call it the theory of overconsumption because we incentivize consumerism, but we do not have the bones in place in order for consumerism to kind of like spin out through that loop that ends up with shortages and badness all around and everyone's like oh gosh um big yikes like that's kind of the summary of, of that theory is just big yikes <laughs> none of these theories are like super interconnected so i'm just gonna jump from one idea to the other the absurdity theory the money system makes no sense and because it makes no sense we also have to have solutions that make no sense as you all probably know, the debt ceiling. So somehow the government keeps on pretending that they're going to default on the debt. They're like, ooh, we would, maybe we would, maybe we won't. Like, ee -hee -hee -hee. and this is debt that they've already accrued, mind you. So like, like this is literally like you sitting at the restaurant and, you know, you, you already ate all the food and you're like, oh, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't eat that food. <laughs> How am I going to pay for it? What? You want me to pay for the food I ate? This is literally what the government is doing at the debt ceiling. They're like, ah, what if we just didn't figure this out and we just defaulted on the debt? Would you all be mad? Like, would you be mad? And it's, it's really, if you boil it down, it's a bipartisan dysfunction because the main problem here is that the two parties just refuse to get along because both of them want to remain in power. And so you have the Democrats and the Republicans, and I don't care what your political, I do not care at all what your political affiliation is. Both of them are bad. Both of them are like, I'm gonna step on your neck in order to elevate myself. They just keep on pretending that that's the best way to run a country. Oh, it's great. And then now the Republicans are like, oh, we're not winning. We, we've lost. Oh, Biden's in office. <laughs> and so they're going to kick some dirt on the Democrats because they're like, oh, if we can't win, we might as well just destroy society. YOLO. They're trying to default on the debt in order to prove that they are like the posterity party to the public. Oh, don't worry. Don't worry. We're not going to spend more money moving forward. That's how careful we are with dollars is that we're going to default on the debt in order to prove that we don't want to spend money. What? What kind of policy is that? And then you have, then you have Mitch McConnell who's like, you know, I've been in office for like the past 500 years and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna kick this debt ceiling down the can, down the road, kick the can, kick everybody, step on necks, and I'm gonna move it around to December 16th because why not have this discussion around the holiday time? That seems like a good idea and that everyone's going to be very productive around that time. And so yeah, now everyone's gonna ignore the debt ceiling until then and be like, how do we pay? How do we do it? I don't know if you ever heard of F-Boy Island, but this is literally debt ceiling island. Like these people are being so 
brief and silly. I, I drew some pictures when I was in the airport waiting. And so you have like the Dens and the Republicans being like, blah, blah, we, yeah. both of them are butting heads. I do not care how you politically affiliate, both of them are bad. Like there's a couple options, uh, right? So you can either have reconciliation, which Mitch McConnell is like, no, everybody's like, no reconciliation. <laughs> and you can either raise the debt ceiling. So this is what they usually end up doing. They've done it like 74 times, 68 times since like 1960. They, they This happens a lot, um, believe it or not. So um, mm -hmm, yeah, they just keep on, they move it. They just move it up. It's happened so many times. So like the fact that they're even like, it's just ridiculous. Or they could get rid of it altogether, which is what Janet Yellen is advocating for. Or they could mint this trillion dollar coin. And so the stalwart who, he's a great guy on Twitter. He works for Bloomberg. He has like become an advocate for the trillion dollar coin. And he has a lot of great points, including the fact that this is an accounting hack. So minting this trillion dollar coin to help solve the debt is an accounting hack that should be used because of course, like why shouldn't it be? Why wouldn't you mint a trillion dollar coin to manage debt that TBH isn't even real at this point? We're just gonna keep on accruing debt. Modern monetary theory it kind of gets into this idea. It's like, okay, yes, debt isn't real. Money isn't super real. So the government can take on an infinite amount of debt and, and they should in order to like keep society running because they have that power. And what Joe's point is saying is, like, so this debt ceiling, the ceiling that the government sort of has to deal with. So every year they're like, oh my God, we have to deal with the debt that we've already accrued up until this. Why not mint this trillion dollar coin? Because it'll prove that the government is like really concerned about society. And they're like, okay, we're going to do everything that we can in order to fix society, including doing this absurd accounting hack, this thing that doesn't really make sense. And uh, we're going to do it because we love you. Mm -hmm. And the, it'd be like politicians being like, we love you society that's kind of how <laughs> and then they would do that probably oh i'm dead and and that's essentially the theory is like the government could do that and then other people are like no you can't just make a trillion dollars and it's like ooh, but you can like print 25 cents on a quarter and call it that call that money you can print one dollar on a dollar bill and call that a dollar so yes you you kind of can just make a trillion dollars because we're not backed by the gold standard anymore so we're not tied down this <laughs> the u.s monetary system <laughs> is single and ready to mingle it's not tied down to any standard they can mint a trillion dollar coin if they want the u.s monetary system is ready <laughs> and in the whole theory here is absurd problems require absurd solutions so yeah the debt ceiling super wacky politicians super wacky why not have a trillion dollar coin because we've basically just hammered our monetary system into the ground and have been like money isn't real for a while now so it makes sense <laughs> yep it it makes sense <laughs> so the speculation theory so another theory so shiba coin mm -hmm, yeah it's up because elon musk has a shiba puppy and if he tweets about it that's its fundamental value so the shiba coin its fundamental value is driven by elon's tweets a little bit similar to dogecoin so tweets are equal to cash flows here tweets are the underlying structure of this business model elon musk and his dog which named floki are the business model and they are the reason that the shiba coin exists People invest in things like Shiba and weird NFT projects because there's essentially unlimited upside here. So it doesn't make sense to not invest. And Nope Lily has really pioneered a lot of work on this subject. So I'm borrowing a lot from her here. I was on a panel with her and I was like, get me off the stage. 
yeah, she's brilliant. She's super duper smart. There's essentially unlimited upside and it doesn't make sense to not invest, especially when there's risk arbitrage in a sense of nihilism. Go up because why not go up? Flows are really a key driver of price. So a large portion of why things go up over time is because money flows into it. So with the stock market, you have a lot of money going into the stock market. So the stock market's gonna go up. Crypto has had a lot of institutional and mainstream adoption over the past several months. So of course, crypto is going to go up. It's not the main reason, um, but there is going to be a proxy to flows here. And with Shiba Coin, because crypto goes up, Shiba Coin is going to go up. Everything trades relative to Bitcoin. Um, so if Bitcoin's going up, you can imagine that all these other projects are going to go up too. And I think with speculation, so really getting into the idea of Shiba Coin, a component of this is gambling. So that's a function of FOMO and pricing and the probability of unlimited upside. So people see Shiba Coin, they make money by investing in Shiba Coin, and their friends are like, whoa, I want to be like you, um, sign me up for ShibaCoin.com. They invest in it, because why wouldn't you? If other people are making money, you get some FOMO. You're like, this kind of sucks. This dummy over here, and this is like a real thing, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's sort of like, dummy over there make money, I want to make money too. It's a real um, psychological theory. You get mad when other people are making money. And there's also risk arbitrage because we don't understand risk. We don't understand the psychology of fear, the math of uncertainty, all of it makes little to no sense to us. So risk is something that we just don't price properly. We just say like, oh, other people are doing that, I'll do it too. And we kind of speculate. We're like, yeah, risk, risk, risk. I'll take it on, count me in for some risk. Put a little risk on my Sunday. <laughs> a risk sandwich. <laughs> uh, no, I don't want the ribs. I want the risk. <laughs> because we don't really understand like the pricing model behind that. And there's a good, there's a guy named Gerd, and he has a good paragraph like talking about risk, how we just don't teach it to kids. And all, because of that, we just don't price it properly. And I think also with Shiba Coin and sort of crypto in general right now, there's also these communal structures of governance. So speculation is enhanced. So like this idea of risk, gambling, etc., is enhanced by how we think of group interaction. So I'm going to be responsive to what members of my in-group say. So Shiba Coin goes up because Shiba is trending on Twitter because there's an element of trust. So I say, okay, yes, these people, I trust them. Like we're on Twitter together we vibe and i price risk differently when there's a group effort because my risk flows are influenced by their flows so risk pricing equals things go up plus community support times factor of influence so that's kind of like how you can think of risk pricing is things go up so the thing is going up by a certain amount and then incrementally you can add on community support times factor of influence so how much you trust those people and that's getting into this community style of governance which i'll talk a little bit later about and then there's also nihilism so i don't think that this is the main factor but i think a lot of people are upset with the structure of society. It doesn't feel fair. And I've talked a lot about this in smaller group circles and I've been like, anti-establishment and everyone's like, oh my God. Like they think I'm um, advocating for that, which I'm not. But I do think fair is an important thing to think about. How do we think about things being fair with fair being a subjective proxy for access to resources and opportunities? So people are probably a little bit more prone to misprice their risk because of the sense of nihilism because why wouldn't they be? And also the marginal value of a dollar. Ah, this is a fun one. This is probably my favorite part of this theory. So listen up. At the end of the day, my speculative dollar is worth more than my static dollar. And no, Lily has written a ton about this. So when you think about the value of a speculative dollar, it's going to go a lot farther than a static dollar. So my dollar that's speculating on something is going to be a lot more valuable than a dollar that's just sitting in my bank account earning 0.00001%. So why would I not put my dollar to use knowing for fact that my speculative dollar is worth more than my static dollar?
my speculative dollar is worth more than my static dollar. My dollar that's invested in crypto dick butt is going to be worth more than my dollar that's invested in apple.com because there's more potential upside. There, crypto dick butt can go to the moon. Apple probably isn't gonna go to the moon. And so thus I see the speculative value of my dollar be a lot more valuable. And this is also the gambling problem that we have in society. So we have kind of a get rich quick problem in society. So speculative dollars are always gonna be worth a little bit more than static dollars, even in the relationships that somebody sometimes see the opposite. Like I'm not over here advocating for you to invest in crypto dick butt. I'm just um, quite the opposite, I would say. I'm just saying that sometimes your dollars that are sitting in your bank account are sitting in apple stock they might not be going to the moon but i also think there's a responsibility that we don't think about enough with our money this is a whole different theory that i didn't even write about so i'll just touch on it really briefly but your marginal dollar is very valuable so like the dollar that you invest into a company that really needs it so like a startup for example and you help them like build the future of education <laughs> just for example <laughs> that is going to be a lot more valuable no offense to the nft projects than investing in crypto dick butt like it just is so like the impact on society the compounding impact on society is going to be a lot more valuable if you invest in a company that maybe is solving for climate change maybe solving for mental health problems that is going to be so much more valuable in terms of social impact but not necessarily monetary return and that's where things get wonky in our heads because we're like but i want the money now and it's like i don't see the immediate returns from investing in a mental health startup that takes too much time and also and angel investing rules in the us are crazy and so we have this like really big mismatch between understanding what our money can do versus what we're what we do with our money in this roi like get rich quick model so just uh, some some snackies for thought. The community theory. We've operated as individuals for a super long time. So it's hard to imagine a world where the individual isn't the sole focus of the equation. Crypto is like the first one to really make some headway here on what a communal decentralized governance model could look like. But the process is really bumpy because with individualism, how do you solve for that? Like the pandemic, <laughs> the pandemic clearly showed that we all operate with one person in mind and that's ourselves. And then this is on aggregate. The US has been an individualistic society for a very long time. Simon Sears wrote a really interesting note describing how people see each other in cities. So you're an obstacle to me in a city. I was just in New York for three weeks and I walked very fast and people were obstacles. There was a little kid in my way once and I was like, move. And I was like walking away from a little kid who moved and was unaffected. But I was like, I, I just yelled at a little kid to move because he was an obstacle. He was not a human. He was in my way. And that sort of individualistic outlook on the world really gets into how we think about things. And I think communal governance, so crypto is trying to solve for that. So crypto knows that we're an individualistic society and they're like, okay, actually we can do this in a form of community governance. So we've been siloed since the industrial revolution because for a long time in the industrial revolution, it was how much work can you produce? So you're a factory worker and it's like, okay, so I am on a factory line with my fellow factory workers, but we have to kind of produce together. We have to produce this, we have to produce that and kind of moving down the line in that fashion. And it really became about singular production and division of work versus group production and division of work. So I'm at the end of the day, I'm gonna produce X number of wheels for a car. 
and you're gonna produce X number of windows. And we're siloed in that way. There are examples of jobs that are more community governed, but even the rise of the office worker is very, very individualized. And when you think about crypto community, crypto kind of turns that narrative on its head. And it's like, actually, we can own the means of production with groups. And, you know, you buy a token, you get access to this DAO. There's a monetary incentive to be a part of this. And time will tell if that model works, but it's making inroads into shaping how we think about interaction and building. So rather than being like that sole factory worker who's making like four wheels on a car, you're going to make cars together. That's the motto on Discord. And then the question becomes like, is decentralization the cure? So does it make sense to operate in a completely decentralized way? Who makes the really hard decisions? Can communities do that? Can communities solve the debt ceiling crisis? Surely they can to an extent, but there are unavoidable bumps in the process, like rug pulls, scam coins, etc. And people get like really up in arms about rug pulls. And obviously they're very, very bad, but it's also the market calibrating. To an extent, all scams are just a function of market calibration. The dot-com bubble was a market calibrating. And now 2008 was the market being manipulated, but also the market calibrating beyond its means. Like it was like, whoa, home prices and people owning these homes, no thank you. And unfortunately all markets kind of have to calibrate to this BS meter. And that comes from dealing with the BS and calibrating from that. BS is everywhere. And the market has to figure that out. The influence theory. So we are defined by what we look at. You're your five's closest friends, and you're also the content that you interact with the most. So I'm sure by listening to me, I've I've influenced you. I'm a finfluencer. <laughs> I hate that term. But as the online becomes increasingly artificial and detached from reality, what does it really mean to influence? And this gets into influencer society way beyond me. Like I am a very small piece of a small piece of this puzzle, bu bu puzzle. We judge ourselves based on the content that we consume, and we consume artificial content, and influencers enforce artificial standards. So then the psyche becomes warped, and reality becomes a function of artificiality. I think this is one of the most important theories to me. So beauty filters are becoming beauty standards. So I get on Instagram, I, like all my favorite fitness influencers have some sort of filter on their face or even on their body sometimes. And a lot of data has come out recently on the role that apps like Instagram have on how we try to mold ourselves to match the standards of the artificial. So influencers are notorious for modifying the way that they look to the detriment of their audience who then is like, well, why do I not look like this? Like why why do I not look like this sparkly cat-eared person? What's going on? And influencers are the standard. So like when you think about Kylie Jenner, um, you might not want to look like her, but on aggregate, most people who are my age, so I just turned 24, most people are like, yeah, uh, I want to look like Kylie Jenner. She's pretty cool looking. She's got everything that society is valuing right now. The interesting thing here is that standardization is a function of commonality. So as we see more people popping up that look like Kylie Jenner, we're going to see that permeate throughout society and we're going to see more people fit that beauty filter standard the more, and, and then the more that we think that we have to match that, the more that you think like, oh, I don't look like Kylie Jenner, so I don't look like insert influencer name here, so I don't match this standardization that has become common, this commonality, I don't fit in, I'm not beautiful because I don't look like this. And that is influenced, which is, this is the most bizarre part, that is 
influenced by artificiality. So not, I'm not even talking about the plastic surgery. That's huge. But I'm talking about the, the filters. The filters that people are applying to their face are impacting how we see the world. I know it sounds crazy because you, you can tell if somebody has a filter on, but they're still, they're fitting into a certain aesthetic and we think that we're meant to match that aesthetic and it becomes the standardization of the artificial. So once the artificial gets standardized, once that becomes common, it becomes even harder to sort through the noise of what's real versus what isn't. This will have a long lasting impact on the psyche of my generation and the ones following where our sense of reality is warped by consumption. So I am completely influenced by this artificial standard that has become common and I'm trying to match some artificial standard which is unmatchable because it's not real. And that is like super crazy to think about is that we are operating in a world where none of this makes sense. The flexation theory, oh, this is another favorite. We wanna flex all the time. We wanna flex on our friends, we wanna flex on our colleagues, we wanna flex on our associates. We want shiny big things to flex on and that is broadly a function of shiny big assets which don't always translate to a real world value. So uh, there was a good tweet from Flick. It's hard to talk about things with young people because they see flexing and clout as currency. So owning a house being one of the easiest means to build wealth is never gonna make sense to a person who just thinks about ownership in terms of whether it's a flex or not. Clout is currency. Sometimes people operate with one goal in mind and that is to flex on their friends. As hard as they can, I would say this is arguably the goal of this generation. No longer is it quiet wealth, I don't think it ever was, but now the wealth is louder than ever. Flexation is the inflation of flexing. So think about how we have to operate in a flex economy. <laughs> when we have flex dollars, we move these clout dollars as currency. You're going to need to flex bigger and harder in order to match that next flex level. And so when you think about inflation, when you think about CPI, it's the same thing with flexing. The CPI on a flex is huge, skyrocketed. It's expensive to flex. And this is why it makes sense that we have NFT projects that moon because it's very expensive to be flexing. And we have the inflation of a flex. So it's more and more expensive. You have to do, you have to have more and more of investment and you have to flex even bigger and harder. And I think flexation, <laughs> and this is like a Kyla-ism, ah, uh, flexation culture trickles down into infrastructure. I, I Everything is infrastructure. <laughs> I, I have focused so much on supply chains and the energy crisis recently. And I think that there is so much more that can be done in hard and deep tech investment. So B2B SaaS, think of all the consumer tech companies that have gotten billions, uh, billions of VC funding, uh, that sort of mindset of how we invest it's going to carry over into how people choose how to flex. So if you're investing in B2B SaaS companies and consumer social companies, people are going to start flexing via those tools because that's where the money is. We're going to see the advent of the digital flex. So Apple Watch, NFTs, metaverse clothing at the risk of the physical being left behind. Getting into this idea of B2B SaaS influencing how we flex. So B2B SaaS being, it's a thing in VC world, so venture capital world, where if you invest in B2B SaaS companies, so think of like Salesforce, where it's going business to business so consumers never really touch it that was a very hot thing with vcs for a while because they were like oh this rando company is worth a hundred bajillion dollars and everyone else was like what like that company is not really doing anything good for society like what if you did something different with your bajillion dollars and they're like no 
And so then that influences how people flex. They start flexing like Salesforce. And B2B SaaS influences flexation culture. <laughs> so the theory of regulation as validation. So regulation is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. So the SEC is trying to figure out what crypto is. And the way that they're going to do that is by suing various crypto companies. And that makes those crypto companies be responsive to the demands of the SEC. It also gives the SEC easy access to info. And it helps the SEC create framework because they're figuring it out along the way. It's so much easier to sue a company and be like, bring forth all the materials that are about you versus having to go find all those materials yourself. So regulation is not a super harmful thing. It just means that there's validation and also that there's a lot of money in the space. <laughs> The theory of information synthesis. All right, so we have a lot of stuff thrown at us all the time and we're never really given any framework to sort through that. So we just like go on Twitter and we get blasted with info. There's no framework for how to process information and it's really hard to parse signal the noise when all this stuff happens because you're like, I don't know what's going on. And my theory is that there needs to be an interface of something called curators where they can help creators who make the content get that content to the people that really need it. I think that curators, so these are kind of the flywheel of the creator economy. So curators have this responsibility to sift through all the noise out there and be like, this is what you should be paying attention to. Everything else is, is not great. But the issue, <laughs> the issue is that there's a funding mismatch. <laughs> so you have creator economy startups getting millions of funding and they don't even talk to creators, much less curators. And that's really not great. And this is a generalized statement, but they somehow have all of this funding, like awesome for them, but they don't even talk to creators. If you're bullish on the creator economy, which a lot of people are, you should be talking to creators about the like the products that you're building for them. There needs to be a creator-curator monetization model where the interface of curators can drive stuff forward and the creator economy will likely flatline if, if these resources keep on getting misallocated because the burnout rate amongst creators, so there's a mismatch in allocation, and that's the theory of what's going on at the creator economy is you have all these people who are raising funds to, to invest in creator startups. And creators are this human interface to the algorithm. The algorithm drives so much of our lives. Like the reason you might be seeing this today is because of the algorithm on YouTube. I hope it's kind to this video. And I we, as a creator, you have to be very responsive to the needs of the algorithm. You post on TikTok at a certain time. You make content that you know is gonna be a little punchy. It's gonna get people riled up. And curators are the interface to a life that's driven by an algorithm because it's unhealthy to have your entire world dictated by a machine. It's just, it's not human and it's going to give you stuff that might be fun, it might be interesting, but there's still a human need to sort through the mass array of content. Unless an algorithm can get that sorted for us, the curators are needed in a world that makes no sense in a very noisy world, they're a huge point of leverage. Curator economy. This was a long one and I wore myself out, but <laughs> these are my theories about the world and I'm going to update them as I learn more about the world because I'm, I'm still learning. I'm still figuring life out. I love doing pieces like this, so let me know if they're helpful or if they're fun or if you like them. This one was super long, so thanks for hanging out if you hung out the whole time. And I'm curious, like, you know, your thoughts on this stuff. So, like, what's a theory that you have? I I'd love to hear it. And feel free to comment. Um, also, like, uh, tag me on Twitter if you post it there, like, post a thread or something, just tag me. Because I think that's the most fun part about all this. So thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks so much for chilling. I hope that you enjoyed this. I will be back. 
I have some fun projects. So keep your eyes out and your ears open. Bye.